Well, good morning, Parallel Church. Uh, you guys all brave the beautiful, warm, balmy winter we get to have. Um, we are in part two of a brand new series. If you weren't here last week, highly encourage you to go back and and listen to to the message. We are talking about New Year's resolution, and I don't about you, but for me, I have given up a long time ago and ever giving giving New Year's resolutions because I know they don't last uh, and all, all of that. I, I chuckle this time of year driving by, anybody else driving by the gym um, and you, you drive by the gyms and the parking lots are packed and you're going, yeah, just wait two weeks. There'll be space again. Nobody else has done that? Okay. Um, but I, I've just given up on that. But regardless of New Year's resolution and giving up on New Year's resolution, every time the calendar turns, I can't help but try not to. But at the same time, I can't help but think, this year I'm going to focus on this. I'm going to be better at that. And I'm, i got to change this. And, and you can, you know, it's always calendar turns. It's always a time of the year to focus ahead, but also to reflect on the past year and going, okay, what went right and what didn't and what do we need to change? And regardless of whether we call it New Year's resolutions or not, we do basically resolve that we're going to be better this year at this. And we're going to celebrate what was in the past and we're going to change something that wasn't so good. We, We do it all the time. And this year, uh, I wanted to teach on, on New Year's resolutions like Pastor Ralph alluded to. I wanted to talk about things that I felt like God was really stirring my heart during the, during the sabbatical. And I came back, you know, from my sabbatical with five things that I felt like I personally, for the next season of ministry, needed to focus on and pay attention to. But I also felt like as a church, this is something that we need to focus on and and pay attention to. And, you know, Big C Church needs to focus on and pay attention to. And I came back and shared it with the board and shared it with the staff and shared it with, with the, uh, our team. And then I read a book called Ecclesia by, by Ed Silvoso. And I was surprised to discover that in the second chapter of that book, he writes the same five things. And, and I began to weep as I read them. And he worded them a little bit differently or quite a bit differently than I did. But they were the same themes, the same things, saying the same thing. And I wept because I was like, number one, my hearer worked. You ever done that where, where God speaks to you and then it actually comes to pass and you're like, yay, I can hear from God. That was God. And you just kind of celebrate that. That was, I, I wept because I was like, I heard right. And secondly, I wept because, because I was like, this is not just a one-year time. This is not just, this is a God thing. This isn't a Kelly Bright Idea thing. This is a God thing. And, and I, I, uh, we began to resolve and began to focus on that. And so this year, as I begin to share these with you, this is not just for 2024. This is not just for some, our direction for the church. This is something that really, I believe, this is from God in, in a big way that we need to focus on and resolve and begin to, uh, begin to apply these things in our lives. Last week, I gave number one, and number one was focus Higher, And we talked about, you know, and it's amazing because you come to church and the pastor says, hey, focus on God. And you're like, check. I've, I've heard that before. But how many know that life, hey, life happens and situations happen. And so often we get 
caught up in society, in life, in circumstances, in, in, in worry, and all the different things that it's so easy to focus on other things. And then basically God becomes the second thing. And what we talked about last week is in this time that I want to resolve, and I felt even as a pastor, I mean, I, I focus on God a lot, but I felt myself that my natural tendency is that when a problem arose, I sought my own knowledge, my own experience. I began to solve problems in my head first before going to God and saying, hey, God, what should I do? That, that regardless of situations around me, that my first go-to was experience, knowledge, wisdom, somebody else. And then I'd go, oh, I should probably pray about that. I just caught myself doing that a lot. And I thought, okay, in this year, I resolve, I resolve that I need to focus higher. And last week, I talked about this idea that this is what God is poking at me at, and I get to get the microphone, so I get to poke at you at the same stuff. It's great. I don't get to have to go through this stuff alone. It's awesome. Love my job. Um, but I, I, God began to poke at me in this thing, is that you worship what you love, and what you love you will sacrifice for. That you worship what you love, and what you love you will sacrifice for. That if I love my spouse... I, when I love my spouse, I will sacrifice her for her. When you love your job, you will sacrifice for it. And when you feel that love fade, you will less likely are to sacrifice for that job if, if you don't like your job. That what we love, we sacrifice for. So one way to detect what you worship is to identify what you sacrifice for. And, and I realize that there's lots of things that I'm willing to sacrifice for, lots of things that I sacrifice for. But then I, I began to list and began to go in priority. Is God number one? Because we can say it with our lips. But if I can identify my priorities by what I sacrifice for, am I sacrificing most for God? Come on. We live in society that is built on convenience. I thank God, by the way. I thank God for heat that we can furnace I thank God every morning this week thank God the furnace is still working I thank God thank God for heated seats in my car hallelujah um, like I thank God like there's things but we naturally gravitate towards convenience isn't that right we like microwaves because it's convenient we like we like everything like done for us. We like convenience. And because our society is built on making everything more convenient, we sometimes allow that convenience trend to, to drift into our spiritual life and our relationship with God. We, we worship when it's convenient and we love when it's convenient and we, we suddenly begin to lose the whole idea of sacrifice. That's what I discovered. I was like, man... It's not always convenient to go to God first, to pray first, to read the Bible every day. It's not always convenient. It's not always convenient to do these things. And I'm going, I, I began to lose this whole idea of sacrifice. And I thought, this year, I want to evaluate my priorities by identifying what I'm sacrificing for and readjust my priorities and make sure that I am focusing higher first. James, the brother of Jesus, said it this way, come near to God and he will come near to you. And for me, I was like, I just, this year, my resolution is to take one step closer to God and believing that I can, when I do that, 
when I sacrifice just one step closer to God, that he draws near to me, right? Number two, you ready for number two? All right, number two, thank you, that's awesome. Number two is grow smaller. And I promise I didn't prophetically plan this around the coldest Sunday of the year. I, um, <laughs> but I, these two words, actually, I've never said before together, except for maybe my New Year's resolution to lose weight. But, I, but I've never had this idea of, like, grow smaller. Like, that's never been a thought, especially in church or ministry. And so throughout my sabbatical, this phrase kept on, like, ringing in my heart. Almost every morning, I'd hear this thing, like, grow smaller, grow smaller, focus smaller, grow smaller. And I was like, what does that mean, grow smaller? No, grow bigger. Like, I'm like God, grow smaller. Um, you know, I, it's, I've never thought of that before. And I remember when I first talked to the board about it, everyone had tilt. When I talked to our staff about it, they're like, what did you just say? Yeah, this year we're going to grow smaller. (laughs) Yay. It's like, no. What does that even mean? Yet, here's here's something I want you to think about. The Christians, we worship a big God with a big mission that will one day reach this whole big world. Yet for all of his bigness, our God has a remarkable love, appreciation, emphasis, strategy on small. And I never saw this before. So when I started hearing what I felt was from God, I kept on repeating. So I was like, God, is this you? Grow smaller. I I went to the word and I began seeking out. I was like, okay, is this a strategy? Is, this something, is there something in the Bible that talks about this? If this is God, then it's going to be confirmed by his word. Well, I, I came across the story uh, from the prophet Zechariah. And the book Zechariah in the Old Testament is uh, a, a, an Old Testament prophet who was raised in the time, was, was living in the time that the Israelites were in captivity in Babylon. Israel got Conquered by Babylon, hauled away as exiles into, into, into Babylon. And during King Darius's reign in all this, Israelites are in, in Babylon, he gives permission to some of the, the Jews to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. So they do. It's a, it's a remarkable miracle. They go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. And as they rebuild the temple, something amazing happens, um, that when it's finished... A bunch of the Jews, you'd think they'd be celebrating, and yes, we got our temple back, this is good. But they started, some of them started, many of them started grumbling, especially the older ones, because they started reminiscing about the days before and what was. And specifically, they started complaining about the fact that the new temple wasn't as big or as beautiful as Solomon's original temple. And they're like, remember when? It's not as glorious, it's not as big, it's not as shiny, it's not as good. So then God speaks through the prophet Zechariah, addressing this grumbling or this complaint. And here's what God says through Zechariah in Zechariah 4. He says this, So he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. Now, those of us who've been Christians for any length of time, we've sung this song, we've, we know this phrase, but I want, to, I want you to hear it and understand it in context. In context, this is God's response to a bunch of people complaining that what they just miraculously had permission to rebuild and did rebuild and accomplish, that they're complaining that it's not big enough, it's not, it's not powerful, it's not the same as what it was, and they're reminiscing about what they lost. 
And God says, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit. The truth is the majority of us then, you know, Jews then, and the majority of us now are drawn to might and to power. We like big, powerful, right? Like we're attracted to that. Big money, right? Big money is better than small money. Check, right? Big business, big church, big government, I got booze in the first service on that one. So I was like, I was like, okay, but some are attracted. Bigger, for the most part, is better, is more celebrated. But God thinks differently. And, and here's something I want you to think about. That when, when the prophet's writing this, think about this, the prophet's writing this, this is very prophetic to foretelling Jesus. Because the Messiah was something that the Jews were hoping was going to come with power and with might and come with so much power and so much might that they would be able to rise up the masses and overthrow their oppressor Rome. That's what they believed. And Jesus didn't come with might and with power. He came by the Spirit impregnating a young virgin born as a small baby in an insignificant little town. And parents from the insignificant little armpit of the, the whole nation, Nazareth, it comes from Nazareth. All of this, he didn't come like they expected, and yet God prophesied, not by power, not by might, but by my spirit. God thinks differently. And then... A few verses later, the prophet Zechariah writes down what God's saying to him, and God says this, Who dares despise the day of small things? Um, me? <laughs> I hate this verse. And the reason why I hate this verse is because this is the verse that's always quoted, has always been quoted to me, when somebody's trying to encourage me because I've been complaining about something not growing as quickly as I envision it to grow. Nobody else? Anybody else ever have this verse quoted to you and you're complaining to somebody and saying, well, it's not, it's not as big as I thought it was going to be. It's not, as, it's not as significant. And someone says, don't despise the day of small beginnings. And you're like, Thanks. Don't quote the Bible at me now. Come on, like. So I've learned to hate this verse. And I'm thinking, don't despise the day of small things. Like, like, yay. And always, and they always say, don't despise the day of small beginnings. And I've always looked at this and said, yes, small to me means weak. Small to me means insignificant. That one day, my little insignificant thing, if I just am patient enough, will grow to be significant. Isn't that how we all feel? Yet this is not what God is saying to the Israelites. This is God's response to the Israelites complaining that the temple wasn't what they envisioned. And God's saying, hey, don't despise. 
Don't despise what you deem as insignificant because the significance of what you just did is reestablishing the kingdom of of, of the, the prophecies and the kingdom, all the rest of it, that out of this is going to come my son and out of this is going to come the transformation that the world and the entire world has been waiting for. And you think it insignificant, but don't despise it because it's small, because it's not insignificant, that what you see as insignificant is not at all. Which makes me think, what if God sees differently than I see? Well, isn't that what the prophet Isaiah said? Isaiah 55, God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, that maybe God thinks differently. Now, just hold on a second. Maybe God thinks differently, and maybe he doesn't fight the same way that the world does, and maybe he seems to use small things very strategically, and maybe small doesn't equal insignificant, that small doesn't equal weak, that maybe God uses small as a strategy. Maybe. I began to see all throughout Scripture that God strategically used small things, insignificant, seemingly insignificant things, to accomplish big tasks. Moses, abandoned by his mother, adopted by an Egyptian princess, raised and trained where? Right within the enemy's palace. Seemed like an insignificant outsider. Wasn't Egyptian, wasn't Jewish, insignificant. Yet God hid him there. Joseph, a prisoner, a slave, hidden where? In the dungeon of the palace, God chose to use somebody insignificant, somebody hidden. And we overlooked, people that we'd overlook, God never did. David, the youngest, overlooked by everybody, a a young shepherd. What kind of training did he get on the side of a mountain? Insignificant. His brothers even said to him, hey, go take care of those insignificant little sheep because men, we're, we're doing the man thing. We're fighting. We're might and power, and you're just insignificant over here. And yet God saw something different. How about Jesus? They missed Jesus because they were looking for might and for power. And Jesus came differently. Jesus said the same thing Isaiah did. He said it this way. He he says it a little bit more bluntly. He says, Jesus said to them, to his disciples in Luke 16, he says, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts What people value highly is detestable, ouch, in God's sight. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. Ow. Here we go. (laughs) Let's go back to focus higher and what we sacrifice for. What I'm sacrificing for, oftentimes, I can justify in my own mind. I can justify those sacrifices, but what what I sacrifice for reveals what I value. And sometimes what I value is actually detestable in God's sight, that it doesn't, doesn't value the same things. 
God's values are often different than ours. Like I said, many missed the Messiah because they valued power and might. And they were looking for a Messiah like Spartacus. They even called him a Messiah who would raise up the masses to squash the evil tyrant Rome. The only problem was, and he created a big movement, the only problem was Rome was bigger. Squashed him. And in the midst of the same time period comes an insignificant little baby who starts something different and was insignificant, seemingly insignificant to Rome. They didn't pay attention. They went along. It was the Jews that killed Jesus. And the Romans just went along with it to keep the peace with this because Rome didn't see Jesus or his followers as as significant at all. And yet it was him that ended up and his followers that ended up toppling the greatest empire, the biggest empire this world has ever seen. And they didn't do it by moving the crowds. In fact, Jesus had this amazing phenomenon. Jesus would gather the masses, have the big crowds, have them in the palm of his hand, and yet he wouldn't motivate them against anything other than to serving one another, and he would withdraw from them and focus on his 12. And then he would take out of the 12 and he'd focus on the three. And something that really caught my attention is in Luke chapter 10, Jesus had gathered an entire massive crowd in this region, preached and saw all these healings and saw all these big things and all the rest of it. And yet Jesus withdrew and took his disciples and sent them by twos. He had the crowd. He withdrew and sent them by twos. And when he sent them by twos, it says, I saw Satan fall. And the entire region was transformed, not by a great revival in a crowd, but by insignificant, uneducated men and women being sent out in twos. It's like God thinks differently. Jesus thinks differently. And yet here's something else that... That hit me. After the disciples had seen all of this, had experienced all of this, they didn't get it for a long period of time. They didn't get it. In fact, here's what when they started seeing Jesus walk on water and raise the dead and heal the sick, and they saw Jesus attract crowds all over the place, they're like, hey, we think he's the one. And you know what they did? You know what they did? They started arguing when his kingdom comes, when he starts moving with might and power, which one of us is going to be right next to him? Which one of us is going to be the most important? When he moves and with might and power, when he, when he overthrows Rome, which one of us? And they start arguing over who's going to be the greatest. And you know what Jesus did you know how Jesus responded? He said this, but many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. And they went, huh? And Jesus said, hey, what the world sees as first important, God detests. And what, what, what the world sees as insignificant and last importance, God says, that's first. And I went, wait, 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 wait. come on. Because we can, we can talk all about, and I can talk as a pastor all about the world and the world's ways and all the rest of it. And then I realized, hey, my whole life and my whole ministry has all been about building big 
and thinking that the bigger the church goes, the more pleased God's going to be. And the bigger the church goes, the more impact we're going to have on the city. And yet the bigger our church has grown, I haven't seen our city get all that much better. And I was like, I've been doing the same strategies. I've been doing this, thinking the same way that the world does. And I'm reading what Jesus is training to his disciples for three years. And he's going, guys, it's not the crowds. Don't focus on the crowds. It's not, it's not the great movement over here. It's, it's come on, focus on the two. If you see this, what you think is insignificant, I don't see as insignificant at all. I see as powerful. It's a strategy. They didn't get it. And at the end of three years of training with Jesus, they argued again over the same thing. And they said, okay, who's going to be the greatest? Who's going to be first? Who's, who, who's he like most? In Matthew 23, this is only a few chapters before the crucifixion. This is like right at the end. In Matthew 23, they argue again, and Jesus says this. The greatest among you will be your servant. Huh? And those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Jesus says, he flips the tables again, and he goes, guys. And then he shows them that the, the creator of all the universe bowed down and washed the stinky, ugly, dirty feet of his creation. And Peter went, no, no, this is not right. And Jesus says, you have no idea because I don't think like you think, Peter. You don't, what you see as insignificant and low, I see as great. I see as the first. I see as the most important. So the reason, why, why am I saying this? I want you to see something. Because many of you have belittled yourselves and many of you have thought yourself insignificant. But I want you to know that, that you're compar comparing yourself and what you're doing and what you're, what all this, you're comparing yourself to how men see you and how others see you and what you deem as and what they deem as significant. But I want you to know that it's not insignificant when you have a conversation in a hallway at work about Jesus and you're going, but I'm not a preacher and I don't know what to say. I don't know. It, is, it, is, it wasn't just a conversation. It wasn't a big deal. It's nothing. nothing. I, I, I can't preach like that. I can't do this. I can't do that. I don't know. We do this, don't we? And you might see it as insignificant, but God's like, no, 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 no. That's not insignificant. That's not weak. That's what I want. That's the strategy. And the disciples were thinking, hey, 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 what happens big? That's a move of God. And God's like, no, 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 no. Uh-uh, uh-uh, uh-uh. And do you notice how many times in the book of Acts, how many times, come on, as insignificant event, like the, Philipp, the, the, the Ethiopian eunuch getting baptized alone in the dead. One conversation with one man, one baptism, all the rest are recorded for all of us to see because God going, that's as significant a moment as Peter standing up and seeing 3,000 souls saved in one sermon. Yet we focus on the 3,000 and we miss the one. And we see one more significant than the other. And God doesn't see that way. And then Jesus goes on, and Jesus says this in Luke 16. He says this. He says, whoever can be trusted with little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with little will be dishonest with much. I've, I hate this verse, too, because it's always been quoted to me. When, when if you're faithful with little, God will give you more. 
I have been faithful. Isn't that what you think too? I am being faithful. When is this going to be significant? That's what we think. When is this going to be something that other people will notice? And God's, Jesus is not saying, hey, if, you, if I can trust you with this little morsel, I'm going to give you something big. He's not saying that. He's saying if you're trustworthy with, with what you seem as insignificant, you'll be trustworthy with what you see as significant. That I don't see a difference between big and little. That faithful is faithful. And it will be rewarded as such. Society often measures a person's worth by what they can manage, but, but God looks at the heart. Not your abilities or skills. He doesn't despise smallness like we do. In fact, his strategy for the church was dependent on this. In Matthew 16, we sang it this morning. He says to Peter, upon this revelation that Jesus is Lord, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Jesus did not use the word church. You've heard me teach this before. Jesus did not use the word church. Man inserted the word church. Church means a building used for public Christian worship. Jesus didn't say, I'm going to build my public meeting. Didn't, I'm not gonna, he didn't say, I'm going to build my temples. I'm going to build my synagogues. I'm going to build my large institutions. He didn't say that. He says, I'm going to build. The word he used was ecclesia. And the word ecclesia is a, was a familiar secular term used by the Greeks and the Romans, and here's what it meant. It meant a social political gathering of citizens who are called together to attend to the concerns of their city. Interesting strategy. But here's something even more interesting, is that the Romans had a word for ecclesia, a term they called, called convitus. And convitus means is where we get, it's Latin for what we get for the word convening. A convening. But here's what convitus is. A convitus is when two or three Romans would gather together and discuss the concerns of, of their city or their neighborhood. They could do so with the power and the authority of Rome and of Caesar. So when Jesus says, I'm going to build my little ecclesias, the disciples were probably looking at him going, wait, you got, you're gathering masses and you're going to build two or threes? What? And then Jesus says, no, he reiterates it and he reiterates what he's saying and how he's thinking. He says this in Matthew 18. He says, again, I say to you that if two of you not two or three hundred, not two or three thousand, not two or three hundred thousand, not two or three million. He says, when two of you agree on anything on earth that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three hundred have gathered together in my name, I will be in their midst. No, no, no. He says, we're two or three. Come on. I have overestimated the large gathering and underestimated the small ones. God doesn't think like I think. My ways aren't, his ways aren't my ways, my ways aren't his ways. I'm looking at this and going, what, when I started digging to the, into this and in, into scriptures, I was like, oh God, please help me. Help me to emphasize what you emphasize and to see what you see and help me to strategize like, like you strategize. And I started to see all throughout the scriptures, his strategies are different. We're different. That Jesus gathered thousands, but he focused on 12. And those 12 focused on small. And they, and they permeated and they turned, not as quickly as we would like, but in over a period of time, they overturned the largest empire on the planet. Not because they motivated the masses, but because 
They overturned the empire before they ever had their own buildings. Interesting. Margaret Mead said this. She says, never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. Margaret Mead is a 20th century secular cultural leader. And she says Jesus' strategy from 2,000 years ago is the only thing that has effectively changed the world. And I'm thinking, wait, wait. Yet here we are as Jesus followers, the ones who read his strategy all the time, and yet I think the same way the world does. And I, I focus on the big, and I focus on the powerful, and I focus on all this. And yet, and yet Margaret Mead says the only thing that's ever changed society has been small groups of thoughtful, committed citizens. In other words, you know what she just said? The only thing that's ever changed the world is ecclesias. <laughs> Huh. And I, here I am thinking if we can grow our church bigger, we could change our city. And we've grown our church bigger. The city hasn't gotten better. And all of a sudden I'm thinking, okay, God, I'm listening now. I'm listening. Instead of growing one big church, what if... What if we had hundreds of little groups of concerned citizens committed to changing the city? What would happen? What would happen? And then I began thinking about this and praying about this, and I realized that, you know what? The greatest, greatest spiritual growth I've ever had in my life didn't come from sitting in a large room like this, the greatest spiritual change that I've had in my life, the greatest disciples I've had in my life has been over, has been in small groups and in with a, with a close relationship and, and in one-on-one coffees and all this kind of stuff. The greatest significant changes that have ever happened in my life have always happened. This I've sat in lots of auditoriums, huge auditoriums, impacted the thing, and God spoke to me and all the rest of it, but the biggest, most significant change happened. And here's what I, here's what I want for you is... I'm hungry for transformation. I'm hungry for transformation in our city. I'm hungry for transformation in your life. I'm hungry for you to connect with God deeper than you've ever connected with God before. And all of a sudden, I've just began to realize that, hey, we might need to adjust some strategies. What if? Today's takeaway is this, is that, look at this. Relationship and connectedness are the precondition for change. So small groups are essential building blocks to my future, for the future, any future that I want to create. Whoa. Relationship and connectedness are the preconditions for change. So small groups, ecclesias, are essential building blocks for any future change. As I reflected on my hunger for transformation I was drawn to the idea that transformation comes when we focus higher 
bring it to him first, and we grow smaller. So I want to challenge you that if you want to grow in your relationship with God, attending a large gathering is awesome. Continue to do it. I'm not saying we're shutting this down, not at all. But I'm encouraging you to grow smaller, to focus smaller, to get into a small group. You know, naturally have, have friends around you that are hungry like you're hungry and you can grow in each other and all the rest of it. And if you don't have a group of friends, Christian friends that you can connect with and grow with, then we're going to provide as many opportunities as we possibly can. Connect with Pastor Ralph, Pastor Jeremy, and say, hey, I need, I need a group that I can hang around with, grow with, and, and do that. And we're starting, actually, this week, we're starting new Rooted groups, which Rooted is going to help you focus higher and really connect with other ones. And if you're saying, I, I'm not a part of that, I don't, I don't know where to start. Hey, this week, is, it's a 10-week course, and saying, I, 10 weeks, I can try this. Because I think any change, just like Peter Block said, he says, any change, anything you want to create, is going to happen if we focus higher, grow smaller. And then I also want to remind you that on January 29, 30, and 31, at the end of this month, we're, gonna, we're calling a, a corporate, a, a church-wide prayer and fasting time. And I had 100 questions, like, what kind of fast? What does it mean to fast? Like, how do we fast? Don't eat food. What do we fast? food if you want to fast something else go ahead if you don't want to participate at all okay if you got health concerns all right fast something else make it a sacrifice but I, we're saying as a church the reason why we're doing this we're going to corporately get together we're going to pray and fast and encourage as many of you that feel this is the year i'm going to focus higher grow smaller this is the year i want to do this that we're going we're going we're going to fast and pray and we're going to sacrifice and say, God, you're first. And we're going to lay down some of our own desires for food and all the rest for three days. You'll survive, I promise you. Um, and, and for three days. And at the end of those three days on January 31st, we're going to gather here in this room that night and we're going to worship and we're going to pray together and we're going to seek God and we're going to eat food at the end of it. And, and it's, going to be, it's going to be amazing. But if we can do this together, man... We're saying it, and we're going to sing it again. I want to see heaven come. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much for your word, the strategies in there that seem so obvious, yet much like your disciples did and much like the Israelites did hundreds of years, Lord, I missed it. I thank you that you are our grace-filled merciful, loving, kind, forgiving God. And Lord, I pray that you'd open our eyes to your ways, not our ways, and that we'd be drawn towards that. And Lord, I pray in each one's life, Lord, Holy Spirit, you'd speak directly to them what grow smaller means this year and what we need to do to be able to do that in Jesus' name. Give us the wisdom to know what to do, the courage to do it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're here today and you don't yet have a relationship with Jesus, you don't have to change nothing, repent of anything, like be good enough, all perfect, ready for, to, for God to accept you. All you need to do is confess with your mouth that Jesus is God. 
And if you believe in your heart that Jesus rose again from the dead, therefore God, you begin a relationship with him, you're saved. That's what the Bible says. So I'm gonna lead us in a prayer just in case you don't know how to pray that. I'll just, I'll lead you in a prayer. Repeat this after me. If you're praying it for the first time, pray it with your heart and your meaning. We'll all pray it with you. If you're watching online, pray it with me wherever you're watching from. Let's pray this together. Dear Jesus, I confess that you are God and I believe that you rose again from the dead and I ask you right now to become my God, my Lord and Savior, and my friend. Thank you for forgiving me of all my sins, for accepting me just as I am. I give my heart to you. In Jesus' name, amen.